Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome my good friend, Dustin Vett. Dustin, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Well, thanks, Dave. Um, it's extremely nice to be on with you. Um, I know a lot about the podcast, know a lot about you, and glad to be on with a, a friend. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about your life, marriage, ministry, anything good you have to tell us, uh, <laughs> upcoming ministry projects that you're working on? Well, that's quite a large question. Uh, the question probably um, could take up a whole podcast time, but um, maybe just a little background, a, a brief testimony, um, kind of tell you where I'm at, what I'm doing. Um, so we can go back to birth, right? That's how David Copperfield begins, um, is I was born. <laughs> so I was born in a Christian home, a uh, small town in Kentucky, uh, actually from a, a small town in eastern Kentucky called London. Um, I have one sister. Um, my parents took us to church just after birth. Uh, in other words, I was always involved in every single activity of the church. My parents both were active members. My grandparents played active roles uh, in the church. My extended family even held offices and leadership positions in the church and volunteered for various ministries. But at the age of 12, um, that's basically the time I remember thinking to myself, none of this is good enough. None of this is going to get me personally to heaven. In fact, I'm a great sinner um, and in need of uh, Christ and in need of salvation. And so after a sermon on one Sunday evening, I became quite convicted of my sin and need of a Savior. Um, God saved me at that point. I was baptized, and then I basically went back to doing those things I'd always done before. My life, in other words, did not radically shift to a new set of principles as they were the same type of principles that I'd lived with all of my life. But not long after God saved me, I began to feel such really an intense desire to, to teach the Bible. I was very young. I had absolutely absolutely no clue uh, what I was doing, how to go about it, how to train for it. But I did have this insatiable desire to explain the Scriptures. So even at 13 and 14 years old, I began studying my Bible, amassing various commentaries and dictionaries that I could get my hands on raiding my grandfather's uh, kind of theological library. Uh, but I struggled um, greatly as a young boy, thinking I was too young to enter gospel ministry. I really, Dave, felt this feeling for several years, probably over um, several years. But at a quite young age, I finally publicly announced uh, to our church that God had called me into full-time vocation ministry uh, to be a preacher. And from that point on, God began to open many doors for me to, to kind of travel and speak. Um, you know, as a young guy, you always get invited to the young group events. So I was invited to youth group events to speak. Um, I was invited to youth meetings, 
uh, to speak, uh, but I knew what I wanted to train for post high school. So I did a BA, um, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Bible um, at a Kentucky Baptist uh, college. And then I went on to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I graduated with my MDiv and my PhD. Um, and God has just been so gracious to me in allowing me to prepare for a, for a lifetime of ministry. But in the middle of all of that training, um, kind of in the middle of my, my MDiv degree, God called me into pastoral ministry um, after serving quite a few years in a church in Kentucky. Uh, he opened the door for uh, myself and then my wife, who I met and married during that period uh, to go to Alabama uh, to serve for several years. Um, and then in the midst of being in Alabama, um, our senior pastor decided to retire from pastoral ministry. And so I became the interim preaching pastor and then was quite convinced that I would never finish my PhD if we did not go back to Louisville, Kentucky and maybe on campus at Southern Seminary to do so. And so once a pastor was found for the church, we packed up everything we owned, we sold our house, um, and we moved to Southern Seminary, of which I graduated a couple of years later with PhD. I was employed at Southern Seminary when I received a call just a little over a year ago um, from the president of Union School of Theology in Bridgend, Wales. That's the United Kingdom, nowhere in the USA. And um, interested in me for a position um, at that school. After about uh, several months of conversation, I was invited, of course, with my wife for us to pack up every thing again, uh, which we did in July in the midst of a global pandemic and moved almost 4,000 miles away from our family and our home um, to serve the church in the UK. And so we currently live in Porth Call, Wales, about 15 minutes from Union School of Theology, where I serve as provost as well as professor of church history. So that's kind of where I'm at and what's going on in my life. Wonderful, brother. Uh, I know you're going to do great there as I told you many times and the Lord will use you and bless that. Can you uh, tell about the, tell us about this book that um, you wrote with Nate's uh, the American Puritans? Um, why you two wrote it and how you uh, how it's being received and those types of things? Well, um, it was a great project. It, it came out um, a few months ago. Uh, we were so thrilled to, to kind of see it in print. Um, both Nate and I, uh, we are dear friends and we were um, just having a conversation one day about potentially uh, putting together a book and not really knowing kind of what area we wanted to study. We both have a passion for uh, New England, early American church history, as well as the Puritans. And so why not marry those two subjects together, as it were, and write a book? So uh, we began to think about um, kind of uncovering, as it were, individuals that were not normally known among American uh religious history. So we're both immensely thankful for the work that had been done the past uh, 50 to 75 years to explore the Puritan movement. However, we believe that almost the first 100 years of American church history, specifically in regard to the New England Puritans, is largely overlooked. Uh, we read about it in textbooks and, and other academic works, but very few people are telling really the human stories of these special groups of Puritans that came uh, to 
to the American colonies in the um, 1630s. And so they're largely forgotten. So um, our actually original title for the book, our, our suggested title, was the Forgot Puritans, uh, because nobody really knows who these men and women are. And so our book is more of a popular level introduction to these key figures of American Puritanism in the, in the hopes, really, that it will reintroduce our audience to the faith and trials of these early settlers. Uh, the book examines nine key figures. We kind of split the list up. Nate wrote uh, on some figures, and then I wrote uh, on others. But we cover nine total, William Bradford, John Winthrop, uh, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Anne Bradstreet, uh, John Elliott, Samuel Willard, and Cotton Mather. Uh, these men and, and women are, again, unknown, and perhaps the listeners, uh, to, even to this, have not ever heard of them. But they're uh, a group of men and women of amazing faith and courage and persistence. And I think we could say almost their admirable tenacity uh, to really keep to their purpose. Um, and then we have to think, well, what was their purpose? Well, it couldn't be money or fame or a name for themselves, but their clear purpose, as John Winthrop put it, was to establish a city on a hill, a beacon, as it were, of gospel light for the rest of the world. Now, none of these men or women were perfect. They had flaws. They had great sins, uh, of which you can read about both in her book and other books as well, uh, which those have been explored. But, but they speak about, they speak to us now about how to freely worship, um, having tenacity and perseverance and adversity, uh, Christianity in the public square, what that's all about, evangelizing the lost in the face even of imminent and possible death. Uh, but they really speak to us about faith in Christ. And so that's the book, American Puritans, and it's just basically nine very human stories. Well, I, I, I enjoyed the book, but uh, more than that, I enjoyed both of them. Encourage the church and to equip the saints. As you worked on this book with Nate, what particular figure in this book stood out to you, and, and what was it about them that stood out? Well, probably um, some of these men I had heard of just doing my own academic work in American Puritanism, um, somewhat grand, grandson of some of these Puritans. Jonathan Edwards was my particular academic work. Um, some of these others I had not quite heard of. But kind of emerging out of all of this became John Eliot for me. I wrote the chapter on John Eliot, born in 1604, died in 1690. Uh, he lived a, a very long life. Eliot was a uh, colonial pastor who possessed an ardent call uh, to go to his neighbors and share the gospel of Christ. Uh, he wasn't a great statesman. Uh, he wasn't, he himself would say, he wasn't a great intellectual, even though I would disagree with that assessment of himself, because he was an enormous, towering intellect. Otherwise, he he would not have been able to do what he did. But he was very simply a man. Um, he was um, very simply a faithful pastor of his church in an area known as Roxbury, Massachusetts. He pastored this church for over 40 years. Um, and simply his endeavors to establish a Christian society among the Native Americans. And this is where I became fascinated with his life and his story. Uh, what Elliot did was that he was so convinced that the Native Americans needed to hear the gospel 
Council that he set about, much like William Tyndale did uh, quite some years prior, to translating the Bible into the language of the Native Americans, as Tyndale did to translate the Bible into English. Now, the Algonquin language, or the Indian language at that period, was not a written language. It was an unspoken language, and so Eliot had to create an alphabet. He had to write several books of Indian grammar and create dictionaries of defining words. But eventually, um, after about 10 years' time, he translated the whole Bible into the Native American language for the sake of sharing the gospel with the Indians. And then he established various outposts called Indian praying towns that really became missionary outposts uh, to the uh, kind of unknown frontier at that time. Uh, But at the end of his life, he called himself a shrub in the wilderness. Basically, I'm nothing more than a bramble bush that's good for nothing but to be blown about by the wind. He he did not see the enormous impact he had had. Um, A lot of this was upset, of course, uh, with the advent of the French and Indian War, uh, but that was not really the section we wanted to concentrate on in our book. But Eliot was a towering figure. Um, He he remained at the helm of all kind of missionary endeavors thereafter. Uh, We know of people like David Brainerd and William Carey, even sometime afterwards. But really, John Eliot is the father of these men, and they know of John Eliot, um, and they talked about John Eliot, but we don't talk about him today. And so that was one of my favorite characters in the American Puritans. That's uh, that's very interesting. Uh, what unique contribution have the American Puritans made for life? It's an interesting question. Um, They have much to teach us about theology and uh, scripture and the Christian life, but I think probably the American Puritans had a zeal for religious freedom, uh, of which we need uh, kind of resurrected even in our own day, as even now we're facing some of those issues to to think through and to ponder of, of how we approach them. But the American Puritans also had a zeal for the evangelization of the lost. Uh, in many cases, their missionary efforts among the Native Americans really sets the pattern, even for today. Um, I'm just under the conviction that we should know, as Americans, our religious heritage. Evangelicals in America should know, should know their religious heritage and know who has kind of blazed this trail before us. So um, I think really that's the contribution they make to us, not only historically, but also in regard to um, evangelization and religious freedom. Yeah, we you know, we uh, in America, we are in a big council. Definitely need uh, been like this and inscribed this book and help ground it. Like the faith is often used. We both know it's a private thing in America. And, you know, the public it is a private thing, but it, you know, it can be figures that uh, help balance this out and, and acknowledge that we have a history in our theological tradition besides on massive impact on the life of the Arab church. But beyond that, we need to know these and recognize they have something to teach the public. Well, yeah, Dave, I would completely agree with that. These men and women, they lay the framework for Edwards. I mean, Edwards comes in a couple of generations. But we think in our own mind that Edwards is kind of where American religious history starts. Well, that's not the case at all. It's beginning with the pilgrims landing at Plymouth and then this kind of second and third wave of people that came over being massively persecuted in England, um, as well as other countries, desiring the freedom to worship as they saw fit instead of as the state dictated how they worship. 
And so the moment that we as Americans, well, you as an American, because I'm now uh, a Welshman or an Englishman, um, but, uh, you know, Traitor. Americans need to, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Americans need to realize, you know, the moment that we think that we're enduring so much difficult persecution that we need to look back and be reminded of a generation that actually did um, face almost certain death. They faced treason charges. They faced other insurmountable obstacles that they seem to plow through with great perseverance. So we definitely can learn from their um, desire to honor the Lord in that way. How can the American Puritans help us to navigate challenging times? Well, I'm not sure, Dave, that I would answer that any differently than I answered the last question. I think perhaps what we can learn again is their perseverance in the face of such difficult odds. Um, a great chapter, extremely practical to read in this book, would be the, the chapter on Anne Bradstreet, which is um, the only woman that we look at, even though women are all over the place during this period, great, faithful, godly women, uh, Puritans during this period. But Anne Bradstreet, because of her prolific poetry and her writing, her diaries and her letters, uh, we have such a rich heritage there. And so I would encourage readers to look perhaps at her story as a story of how we can navigate some current challenging times with the issues that she faced. And so we're getting it not only from a woman's perspective, but a woman who's raising children in, in the midst of this difficult period, who is um, tending to her garden. She's trying to provide food. She's trying to put food on the table. She's making candles. She's, she's washing laundry on rocks. You know, I mean, just these unbelievable things, these unbelievable hardships that we know nothing about today, but yet through it all, she's writing this gorgeous poetry of the providence of God. And and so, I mean, everything is stacked against uh, Bradstreet and these others men, other men. Uh, but, they, but they went forward anyway uh, with an unfailing commitment to the gospel of Christ and the desire to worship God freely. And so I think that's pretty applicable to our current time, um, that regardless uh, of what's going on around us, uh, politically, economically, culturally, uh, we still have the same mandate as these men and women had, uh, which is to spread the gospel of Christ and to serve uh, to serve Christ's church. That's that's our mandate. Yeah, you're, you're touching on something that I repeat to myself, that is being, being focused, being, being faithful, being focused, being faithful mm. yes, yes. being focused on yeah. us, that um, yeah. two things back to the, really the most basic. Yes. You know, we both know that the Puritans were huge writers. I mean, wrote and they wrote and they wrote and their writings just going on and on and on and we had both of them uh, were the were the Puritan were the American Puritans equally known for their uh, output in writing and what can writers today learn from well, it's an interesting question. Um, the American Puritans wrote quite a bit, but nothing compared to their English counterparts. Um, the Mathers, of course, have several works, uh, but there are instead from the American Puritans uh, diaries and letters and poetry, um, etc. Uh, because the American colonies, of course, were rule and extremely difficult, uh, the opportunity to write and publish just simply was not present for them like it was for those who lived in, which was at that time, the greatest nation on earth, um, which is, uh, which was um, uh, England, uh, kind of that, that empire-esque um, thought during that period. And so the, um, the advance of technology was not the same. 
Um, paper was not not present like it should have been. Even a hundred years later, when Edwards is on the scene, he's writing on envelopes that they receive in their homes. He's writing on his wife's dress patterns that she used to cut out and make her dresses and to sew her clothing. That's what he's using for paper. Even when John Eliot went to produce the Bible in the Algonquin language, he had to send for supporters in England who actually sent a ship filled with paper and a printing press upon which he could actually print and publish this Bible. And so this, the same things that those on this side of the Atlantic would have had available to them for writing, paper, ink, pens, etc., just were not available uh, to the American Britons uh, so readily. And so we do not have voluminous, vol- you know, volume after volume of works by the American Puritans. Again, we have these great writings, but they're, they're just not near the length of the English um, Puritans, even though many people would call all of these English Puritans, but we do uh, use kind of this language to separate uh, the groups. And so, if anything, uh, I think we need to learn the necessity of keeping a written record of our lives. Uh, perhaps we can't learn from their writing. I'm not sure that I would encourage anyone today alive to learn from the writing of the Puritans. It's long, it's quite tedious, it's dense, there's long sentences, they don't like punctuation, um, and so the style, I'm not sure, uh, but the richness of Christ, the richness of God's glory, the denseness of Scripture, and how much they use that, I think absolutely we can take as an example of how our writing should look today. But if anything, we could pick up the spiritual disciplines of journaling and writing letters and keeping record, record of God's providence in our lives, and um, which I think we could definitely pick up from the American Puritans. Oh, great, brother. Well, you are known as the Benj on social media. Um, I think, I think honestly, I'm not trying to embarrass you. Um, you, know, you are everywhere on social media. Like, your name is everywhere. <laughs> if somebody goes on Facebook, like, oh my gosh, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, they're going to run into you. Praise the Lord for how he's using you for the gospel. And personally, as well, I'm very thankful. What advice do you have for ministries on navigating the consequences? Well, um, I appreciate that, Dave. It's it's been quite a whirlwind uh, the past couple of years. Just you know, in sharing truth, kind of, it's like a moth to a flame. There's so many people starving and desiring truth, um, and that's what I desire to share. Um, I, I'm quite humbled by it. Um, I, I so appreciate the dear friends that, that I've met on social media. I think probably our connection uh, was on social media uh, to begin with, and so perhaps that's uh, the result of having this conversation. Uh, but if I could give any advice of what I try, strive, even in my flesh, I fail to sometimes. But things that I strive to keep in mind is I strive to kind of rise above the petty arguments uh, that seem to dominate the platforms. In other words, we have a unique opportunity here um, as Christians to share truth. Um, There's millions and millions of tweets and Facebook posts that go out every day. I mean, there's something like 3.8 billion people on this planet that are, are identified as social media users. And so Christians have a unique opportunity to share the truth and spread the gospel and edify and encourage other believers. I don't think we always need to air our dirty laundry like we tend to do as the church, uh, arguing and bickering and fighting and all of this ungraciousness and and lack of patience and debating and arguing and really making enemies with those that we've never personally met. Uh, that's not my desire at all. Um, I, I 
don't desire to make enemies out of anyone on the only context I have is their little bitty circle picture uh, that I see on Twitter. And so we need to exercise patience with people. We need to exercise grace in our interactions and, and ultimately share Christ. I mean, the church could be a major stream, a major influencer in this regard, but I feel like we've given over to more of our flesh than our spirit. Uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is often weak when it comes to these platforms. Okay. You, you said something really, really important. I, I, I have said over and over again over the years, um, I wish that we would go and people would pop on Skype or on the phone or, you know, text or whatever when there's theological disagreement and those types of things. I feel like that would be the more appropriate thing. Um, not that there's not any need action or whatever, but I think that's best done in those mediums. And that would help. That would help there to be an actual conversation. I know in a lot of cases that's happening, but on our side, not
Well, just as an encouragement for your listeners, don't be intimidated by the Puritans. Um, the term Puritan automatically just signals in our mind, well, they were people that wore black clothes with stiff white collars who were just hateful all the time and didn't want anyone to have any fun. Um, I would say, yes, their writings can be a bit dense and sometimes difficult to manage, but persist. Uh, pick up the Puritan paperbacks from Banner of Truth and be introduced to the Puritans with some updated language. Uh, you'll be richly blessed. But also discover for yourself the rich spiritual religious heritage that seems to be kind of buried in American church history. Um, I, I promise this is not a plug, but if you want to do that, buy the American Puritans or read the American Puritans and, and become acquainted with these very human personal stories, these biographical accounts of these men and women, um, I think it'll bless you, uh, or at least that's our prayer. Uh, that was our prayer in writing the book. Uh, but don't be intimidated. Launch out. Read, read the Puritans. Enjoy that era of church history um, because so many of them point us directly to Christ through the Word, and that's what we need to uh, constantly uh, and consistently be reminded of. Oh, brother, I so appreciate Appreciate you. You know that I'm a capable. But I know I'm thankful for your friendship. The Lord is using you, and the Lord's Thankful for you. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I could reiterate that to you as well. Thank you for the invitation to come on and talk just a minute about subject that's quite dear to my heart. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.